your singing was especially helpful to me today. So I'll just tell you that you ministered to me, uh, and thank you. Um, uh, choir number, congregational singing, all involved. Um, was struggling all the way up until the hour that I had to get up here and preach. Um, I, I want you to know as your pastor that it's not always want to preach, but have to preach. Okay? Um, just being honest with you. Um, and so today you brought me from have to preach to want to preach. So thank you. <laughs> All the way around, just, again, I have the advantage of sitting up here in the front row and having you minister to me with songs and hymns and spiritual songs, and I get it all from behind me, and when the choir sings, I get it all from in front of me, all in the first row, and uh, it's a blessing, so thank you very, very much. I want you to pray for Mafe. Uh, many of you know Mafe. She's home for the weekend because tomorrow she's trying to conclude and finalize her citizenship to the United States. So um, I didn't know that till I saw her here, and I don't know where you're seated. There you are. And, um, so I won't go through all the details, but let's just pray it wraps up tomorrow so she doesn't have to keep coming back. This has been a nine-year process, and it'd be great to have it conclude tomorrow. So I know you're anxious about that, and we are going to pray for you today and tomorrow. All right, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is, for your memory's sake, a chapter that is exclusively about the security of the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I need to restate that before we head into our passage for this morning. This whole chapter is exclusively about our hearts being assured that we are children of God. The passage that we'll discover or read or unpack this morning, um, discover for some who are new believers, um, read for others who have been believers for some time, but yet not familiar with the text, and unpack for those who have been familiar with the text for a long time, has been a text um, of great controversy, unfortunately. And I will say that unfortunately, because it was intended to be within the context of chapter 8, a text of great comfort. Uh, and remember that verses 28 to 30, for all of us who claim the Lord Jesus Christ is just another layer of God's assurance to us as his people that we're his children. And what a great uh, delight it is to be able to rehearse these verses for some, uh, discover or for the first time for others, uh, or unpack for others. Uh, regardless, may we all, by the Spirit's ability, be able to remember that this is a text of comfort and of compassion, of love, security, and one of assurance, because that's what God would intend it to be. Let's look at verse 28, 29, and 30 this morning. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now we'll stop there for a moment, and I will say that this verse in particular 
has always been a verse of comfort for all of us, hasn't it, that are familiar with it. We draw upon this verse many times during the course of a year. But remember, this verse of comfort is attached to the ensuing words of equal comfort that we rarely look at as comfort, but within the context, again, as we've already stated, we will today. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I want to take these three verses and divide them up into three sections to help us better understand what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us this morning. So first of all, what I'd like us to understand is our ultimate purpose in Christ, as mentioned in the second part of verse 29. Now, my outline is not going to go in a natural order of 28, 29, 30. All right, we're going to start in 29 and then back up into the other verses, but I'm going to tell you why grammatically I believe this makes sense. Our ultimate purpose in Christ is described in the second half of verse 29. Secondly, this morning, God's supreme plan for us in Christ. And that comes in the first part of verse 29 and then 30. And then finally, I'd like to discuss this morning our pursuit in Christ. In other words, when we leave this auditorium this morning and we wake up to begin a new week tomorrow, our pursuits would include various aspects outlined for us in verse 28. In verse 28. So let's go back and begin this morning in the second part of verse 29. For those of you that have been around at Grace Church of Menor for any certain period of time, you know that we have a church mission statement. And our church mission statement is Grace Church of Menor exists to glorify God by evangelizing or reaching the lost and equipping the saints with the goal of what? Christ-likeness. That's our goal in life, isn't it, as a church? Collectively, individually, we reach lost people who need Christ and then we train them in the Word of God so that they can pursue that ultimate goal, which is Christ-likeness. For many divine reasons, the Holy Spirit has given for us in this text the ultimate reason why we exist. And it is grammatically, I believe, pronounced first so that as we go through this text on security and comfort, we will not miss exactly what this text is about. So where do we see this in the second part of verse 29? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And here's the reason. Your translation added the words to become. He predestined, but the text goes on to say he predestined conformed to the image of his son. Conformed to the image of his son. 
So this is really what the Apostle Paul is saying to begin. If you desire to know God's word so that you can become more and more each and every day like the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be assured in your hearts that you're a Christian. Remember, this is a chapter on assurance, comfort, and security. The ultimate purpose of these three verses is to make sure we all understand that we should, if we're children, desire to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. If that's your desire this morning, you're a child of God. Okay? Now, we could close the sermon and all go home without understanding because that is the central reason for these three verses. Everything else that's going to be uh, taught this morning underpins that central purpose in our life. I always want my children to know that they're my children. There's multiple things that you have done, I have done, and that we will do to always assure our children that we love them, they're securely part of our family, and by God's grace, they always will be. Amen? Amen. How much more our infinite God. And the primary way he wants to assure us that we're part of his family within this immediate context although we've learned many others in chapter 8 already, is do you desire to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Do you long for that? If you back up here into verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for what? For good. I want you to underline the word good here. And I want you to somehow... Put a notation in your Bibles that connects the word good to the phrase conform to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the good that God is speaking of here in verse 28. All things work together for the purpose of causing us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now that would make sense. Romans chapter 3 taught us what? There's not anyone that's good except God. That was Romans 3. Romans 5 taught us that Jesus, as the second Adam, came to take away sin, is the goodness of God. We know from what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12, that it was his singular pursuit in life to lay aside all those things that were behind him and make it his goal to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So we have to start here. What is God's ultimate purpose for us on this earth? To bring him glory by pursuing the express image of his glory, who Hebrews 1 says is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Christ-likeness. Now, isn't that simple? If I was to ask for a raise of hands, how many of you at least would hope in one way, each day you would look more and more and act more and more like Jesus Christ. All of your hands, would you throw them up in the air and say, please, as broken as I am, as frail as I am, I would hope at least today that I grew a little bit to become more like my Jesus. Well, this is the good. So whenever you quote Romans 8.28 again, And I believe this is all going to make a whole lot more sense by the time we're done this morning. Whenever you quote Romans 8, 28, and you say that word good, let's remember ultimately 
that it's our goal to be good like our Savior and to be conformed to the goodness of our Savior. So that's our ultimate purpose. To be conformed to the image of God's Son. Secondly, this morning, let's move on to God's supreme plan. God's supreme plan for us in Christ. But remember where we began. It's very important for us to remember today with each one of the points, two or three, where we began. The plan that God put together for us, this supreme plan for us, was exclusively put together so that we might have the opportunity to achieve his ultimate purpose for us, which is Christ-likeness. And remember, he's laying out for us layers of opportunity that we can pursue and know, understand, and live so that we can assure our hearts that we're children of God. This is all about assurance and security. So he gives us the ultimate purpose. Now he's going to say, here's the plan I mapped out for you to ensure you the reality that you can become like Jesus Christ. So the next phrases that we'll look at here, which have often unfortunately brought controversy to the Christian community, provide great comfort to us as God's children because you know that God's omniscience and omnipotence laid out this plan before us to pursue an ultimate goal of Christ-likeness. In other words, his grace has planned it all. It's mine but to receive. Right? So, what are the elements, what are the aspects of this plan that God has given to us? Let's look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He also predestined. Now, let's go down to verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I remember when we were planning my parents' uh, 50th wedding anniversary. It was a particular member of our family that had the burden to do so. So they took it upon themselves to um, undertake this surprise party, all the planning for it. And boy, if you're going to truly uh, create a surprise for someone about to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary, you have to be pretty wily. You have to be pretty creative. It's hard to surprise people who are in their late 60s, early 70s. It's really hard to surprise people. So, no, I said wily. I didn't say deceptive, although many times we are. Right? Well, somehow, the person who planned this 50th wedding anniversary for my parents was uh, resoundingly successful, and you could only tell by the expression on my parents' face when they walked in the room. You know, complete and absolute total surprise. Well, why did we do that? Right. Well, because we loved them. We wanted to honor them. And so it was worth putting together all the plans, 
over a year in advance for that particular moment of surprise. When they walked in that room, they didn't know about the origin of the plan. They didn't know how long the plan took together, put together. They didn't know the layers of the plan. And they didn't even know the moment that they received the plan, all that had gone into the surprise. And they just stood there basking in the joy of the surprise and the plan to surprise by those who loved them. All I want us to do this morning, with the beginning part of verse 29 and the whole of verse 30, is to bask in the joy of the plan of what God's done for us, to ensure us by His grace that we can be in Christ and then every day pursue to be a little bit more like Him. The grace of God when it became known to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, was a great surprise for us, wasn't it? Do you remember when you actually comprehended how much of a sinner you really were? And do you remember when you actually comprehended how much Jesus actually did for you? God did for you in Christ. And remember when you realized that you may have been the only sinner in the world that needed Jesus Christ because when you truly come to know Christ as your Savior, you're really not thinking about who else needs Him. <laughs> you're just consumed with how much you need Him. When you bowed your heart and you bowed your knee, you bowed your knee to be submissive to God and you turned from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, do you remember that glorious, spiritual, aha moment like, wow. But can I remind all of us what none of us knew the moment we were born again? None of us had probably ever heard the word foreknowledge. None of us had ever probably heard the word predestined or called or glorified or justified. Would you agree? But yet the surprise of God's grace the moment we were born again was glorious, wasn't it? So just like my parents walked in that day and they were aloof to the whole of the planning, the whole of the origin of the planning, or even the day of the surprise, when we enter the environment of God's grace and salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, we too <laughs> realize what it means to be free from our sin because we threw ourselves on the mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And cried out to him to save us. But we were still unaware of the origin of the plan, the process of the planning, or the time when we would be saved. Would you agree? So the pursuit of the goal is Christ-likeness. God's ultimate purpose is Christ-likeness. The plan now that was presented to us really after we were saved is given to show us that the ultimate purpose for us being saved to pursue Christ's likeness was not, or does not originate with us, cannot be planned by us since it did not originate with us and cannot be brought about by us because of the previous two statements. It's all of God, which makes it so glorious. Before we, in brief detail, outline the phases of God's plan for us. 
we must come to a pre-understanding from some phrases in this text that would help us understand this five-phase plan. First of all, each one of these words, each one of these phrases originate with God and not us. Omniscience and omnipotence is behind all of our salvific blessings. Most of us here today, as I said earlier, when we were saved, knew nothing about these terms. And by the way, you did not need to know these terms in order for you to be saved. Amen? Amen. Anyone here that claims even now, maybe you've been saved for decades, to fully comprehend the aspects of this plan, I would consider you intellectually dishonest. Because they're originated, birthed, and schemed for us by omniscience and omnipotence. And no one here would be able to claim either one of those incommutable attributes of God's greatness, right? So we need to understand these things before we study these five aspects and unpack these truths of God's plan. What does the first phrase say here uh, for us in verse 29? For those whom he foreknew. Now when I said we're going to explain these briefly with detail, there's a reason why I said this. The immediate context here, remember, is not about the plan that God brought about in our lives so that we could know Christ and pursue his likeness in the way we lived. Remember, the plan is just stated here without explication of itself because it is just another layer of comfort and security and assurance. In other words, remember the the Roman church was a church that was healthy. They were spiritual. They weren't struggling. So Paul is just really in chapter 8, giving them layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer without any exhaustive treatment of each, any layer to just assure their hearts that they're children. So when he writes these words here, he's assuming that these people already understand these words and they're going to be able to take them within the immediate purpose as to why he was writing. They're going to hear these phrases, not need them to be explicated or explained, and just say, oh, wow, I'm saved I didn't know these words when I got saved, but it's amazing to me, God's eternal, omnipotent, omniscient plan for me. Oh, wow, I'm really a child of God. It didn't begin with me, so it can't end with me. So in the meantime, it's just got to be God's grace that carries me towards this purpose of Christ's likeness. Does that make sense? Whom he foreknew. It's just a word that is comprised of two words. And it just simply means to know before. How's that for intellectual? It just simply means to know before. But you have to understand something about these two words. These were words that the Roman believer would have heard like this. For those whom he fixed his love upon. 
I think the most pure translation of foreknowledge is exactly that. That's how they would have understood this. For those whom he fixed his love upon. It's a compound word that is sourced in the absolute goodness and compassion of God. It is a word that only is understood by us grasping, saving faith and repentance as gifts of God. In other words, once we're born again, and we are taught immediately, potentially, about this word foreknowledge, all we understand is, I'm amazed that God loved me like that. He fixed his love upon me in eternity past. And the only thing that helps me understand this after I'm saved is the grace of God that draws me and the grace of God that saves me. And now it's the grace of God that illumines my heart by the Holy Spirit of God to know this was all done in eternity past by love. Divine, perfect love. It's abundantly important that we simply embrace these short explanations Again, fully understanding omniscience and omnipotence as it relates to foreknowledge is impossible for those who would be intellectually honest. But nonetheless, God allows us to understand what we have already stated and move forward in trust that his love and compassion in the whole matter of foreknowledge leads us to be predestined. And that's the second phrase. This is the second phase of five who he fixed his love upon. And it's again, a compound word, two words put into one. It just simply means this. He determines beforehand, or he decides beforehand. What does that mean? Well, again, often in the world of contentious Christianity, this word is debated and what they debate, they debate over what it really doesn't mean, so they end up being theologians as cats chasing their tails. Foreknowledge is a word of fixed love. This is the word of destiny. This is a word of destiny. As a matter of fact, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones and his commentary on this particular text as quoted by an author, notes that the word predestined here has as its root the English, a Greek word where we get our English word horizon. Horizon. God predetermines or gives us a marked out destiny. And this is the way Martin Lloyd-Jones describes that. Have you ever, last Sunday, when some of those visiting pastors were here, after the evening service, uh, they came over to our house, and we went down to the lakefront to see the sunset. Last week, there were some glorious sunsets. I, I don't know if you had a chance to catch any of them. We stood down there in, in, in Mentor Beach Park, and we were watching the sunset. And, and you know how it is. When the lake waters and the sky meet, right, that's, our, that's, our, that's the horizon, that's all we can see. What D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says with the Greek word here, predestined, he says, we can see what we can see, but God takes care of what happens beyond the horizon that we can't see. He predetermines. 
And that's where we get this, the root word here, horizon. This is something that God had planned for us out of his love about time and eternity that none of us could have ever done for ourselves or for anybody else. His love's fixed upon us and he takes care of what we cannot see or care for. And he does this all in eternity past. He moves on here to a third phase. He also called. Well, John chapter 8 tells us that no man pursues the Father unless the Father draws him. I will tell you that the Bible states very clearly, and I would like you to write it down here, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, that Jesus died not just for our sins, but the sins of the whole what? The sins of the whole world. I would also like you to write down in the margin of your Bible, 2 Peter 3.9. God is not slack concerning his promise, but is patient towards all men. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I would also like you to write down here 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where it says that the Lord Jesus Christ paid with his own blood the price of even those who would deny him. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was for all men. And comprehensively so. Our text tells us here that that general call goes out to all men, but there are some people that are called. And the language here you can't argue with. And remember, it's part of God's omnipotent plan that he has done for us that we could not scheme for ourselves. He calls us. And when Jesus says, whosoever will may come, he meant what he said. And each one of you that knows the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, again, not knowing this ultimate plan in these words the moment you were born again, you remember when God the Spirit prompted you of your sin? Do you remember when God the Spirit convinced you of who Jesus was? you remember feeling that desperate need to turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? And that's all you remember. But that moment that you decided to bow your knee and trust Christ, you were understanding what God had planned. He called you. And aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful he fixed his love on you? Aren't you grateful that he predetermined beyond the horizons that we cannot see? And aren't you glad that he followed that up with an omnipotent wooing of the Holy Spirit? And that omniscient, persuading way that he convinced your soul that you needed Jesus? The text goes on to say that he also justified. It is not my purpose at all this morning to review what we took weeks to, to preach on in Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5. I would ask you to go back on our website and rehearse the doctrine of justification on your own if you have time. 
But the text says here that when we come to know Christ as our Savior, part of God, it was all part of God's plan to justify us. Not to make us righteous, but to what? To declare us righteous. To declare us righteous. And this is what he's done. But the final phase of five is very interesting here, the way it's worded. It says, he also glorified in verse 30. He also glorified. It's really interesting because a lot of us know Philippians 1.6, right? He that has begun a good work in you will perform it until when? Until the day of Jesus Christ. We know 1 John 3, 1 to 3, we have this hope in us. We long to see Jesus. And when we see him, we'll be like him because we will see him as he is. A lot of us are familiar, if you've taken any Bible classes in maybe Christian school or Christian college, there's three kinds of sanctification, right? There's initial sanctification. That's when we're first saved. God declares us holy, right? And then there's the sanctification that's progressive that we experience while we're living. That's the ultimate purpose, to pursue Christ-likeness while we live. And then we talk about final sanctification, right? We'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. That's what glorification is. But it's interesting here the way Paul encourages the hearts of the Roman believers. He doesn't state it as something that will happen. He states it as something that already has happened. It's amazing. I don't believe he does this anywhere else in the New Testament. And what he's trying to do to these faithful, loyal, Scripture-loving, Spirit-dominated saints is saying, look, even... When it comes to the mind and heart of God, even your final sanctification, even that moment that when you become like Jesus when you see him, that's already a done deal in God's heart and mind for you. It's as good as gold. Even though you're waiting for it, it's already done, and he will do it. That's why he states it passively here. You have already been glorified. You've already been glorified. Whatever analogies you want to use of promises that you make your children about the future. Even, even though our hearts would long to be able to say that we have 100% assurance follow through with any promise that we make our children. Because we're fallen creatures, we might even forget. Or we might not even have the capacity or the resources to fulfill a promise that we would long to keep for them. But God doesn't have those issues of resources. Right? He doesn't have those issues of not being able to follow through with a promise. He's, he's Yahweh. He's Jehovah, right? So what he says he's already done is going to happen. And we're glorified. We're glorified. This is God's plan. And he planned this, again, without our understanding of it, for what? Roman numeral number one, first point this morning so that we could pursue something that was good. All things work together for good. And the good for us is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. All right, let's wrap up this morning with our final and third point. Okay? So when we leave this auditorium and we wake up tomorrow, what do we do with all of this wonderful information about assurance and security within the immediate context? I was told by a seminary professor in our homiletics course, they said any sermon that is a good sermon will encourage people 
to be excited about how to live Monday morning when they wake up. All right, so I'm going to really try to do this. But just remember, when you hired me 26 years ago, you were far from hiring the sharpest knife in the drawer, okay? Uh, theologically, philosophically, practically far from the sharpest knife. I'm like half of a butter knife. And what would it be like using half a butter knife to butter your bread, right? How'd you like to butter your bread with a handle of a butter knife, right? So that, that's what you got with this dude up here, okay? So just hang on with me here as we talk about how we're going to put hands and feet to this when we wake up Monday morning. Remember our... Our ultimate purpose is Christ-likeness. Remember everything we just reviewed in our second point's already been done for you. You are unaware of it. You're still saved. All right? So why? Why? Well, we go back to verse 28. So we're going to end with where the passage begins. All things work together. Right? All things. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, we know what's good, and we know that's tied to his purpose, being conformed to the image of his son. But I find it interesting here how the text starts. He says, and we what? And we know. Let's go back up to verses 26 and 27, and let's find out what we don't know. Be reminded from the last couple weeks. In the same way the Spirit also helps, verse 26, our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Again, I'm not going to rehearse this. You can go back and listen and watch these sermons online. But there's something we don't know in verse 26, yet there's something we do know in verse 28. I find this simply amazing to my simple mind. There are times when we're struggling really to understand and discern and know and live this book. And we really don't know what to do. And we realized last week that's where the, spirit, the intercession of the Spirit comes in to play. To help us know, comprehend, and do. Now, that seems, that seems simple for us to understand. But, but we all know that when we're studying this book and maybe even just for our own personal gain, or maybe even studying to teach it, and we're, we're having a hard time grasping its meaning, we need the help of the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Spirit for sure, but we also need His intercession. So we get that. It's simple. It seems hard at the time, but God's going to do it, and we believe it. But sometimes what happens in verse 26 seems harder to us than what happens in verse 28. When we get to 28... He's talking about not just our understanding, knowing, and doing the will of God. He's talking about all things that pertain to life and godliness. Right? Everything that happens in this world, either for us or against us, politically, socioeconomically, educationally, whatever. Whatever happens for us or against us, all things, all things we know, we're confident. I can remember going through multiple funeral lines of what seemed to be an untimely death of a saint. And you're greeting, grieving loved ones. And what sounds to be almost cliche at those moments, we all easily come to conclude, right. oh, I'm so sorry, this is just so tragic, this is so difficult. 
And, and, and at that moment, by God's grace, that hurting believer just belches out the words, God has a plan. God has a plan. All things. I know. I know that all these things will work together. It's almost easier for us at those moments by God's grace to grasp a grander plan we could not even conceive than it is for us even to mine out the truth of the word of God with difficulty. So what we don't know in verse 26 we do know in verse 28. There is special spiritual confidence that because of God's plan, the five phases of it that I was unaware of when I was born again, I'm able to pursue God's ultimate purpose, which is Christ's likeness on a daily basis. And part of pursuing Christ's likeness when I wake up tomorrow is no matter what happens to me, for me or against me, I know that God's got some kind of grander scheme of things for me. And I'm confident that my Father has already and is working those things out. God is compelled of himself. That's the grammar here. God causes, he's compelled of himself to ensure that all things work together so that I might become more like Christ. Because remember, the good is Christ-likeness. And Paul's trying to assure the Roman believers' hearts, remember, ladies and gentlemen, that the pursuit of that which is good only comes to those who love God and who are called according to his Christ-like purpose. So assure your hearts again. Yeah, I believe the plan. I must be a child of God if it's that easy for me to trust. God has a plan. It's easy for me to believe that, that my God's good enough to ensure my heart that he's going to compel, be compelled of himself to make sure that all these things for me or against me are that I can pursue Christ's likeness. And by the way, only people that love God actually want to pursue Christ's likeness. See how simple that is? Now what pursues, what helps us pursue Christ's likeness? Oh my goodness, we could spend weeks, which we're not going to do. We can spend weeks discussing multiple passages in the Bible that tell us how God brings Christ's likeness out in our lives. First and second Peter are all given to us to assure our hearts that even trials and tribulations, right, compel us towards Christ's likeness. Many, many passages in the scriptures talk to us how even the good things that God has done for us and given us should compel us to Christ's likeness. Romans chapter 2, we've already studied among many other ones. Whether triumph or tribulation, God causes all aspects of both. He's compelled of himself to to nudge us, <laughs> bring us to greater Christ-likeness. So whether you're diagnosed with terminal cancer and you're given a month to live, or whether you've inherited $10 million from an uncle 
you thought didn't have $10 to his name. God is compelled of himself to bring about in your life Christ-likeness because he knows you love him. And you've been called according to that purpose. So no matter what comes our way this week, Paul's telling to the Roman believers, you wake up tomorrow morning, and if you have a good spiritual hair day or a bad spiritual hair day, what's God doing? He's molding you into the likeness of his son. Does that make sense? All right. That's his ultimate pursuit. Right. How are we going to live tomorrow? All things. Because we live in a sin-cursed world, all things have meant a lot of different things lately. Not just for us personally, as we fall to our old sinful inclinations, but as we watch both political fury and we, we are eyewitnesses to acts of God with hurricanes or earthquakes. Fires in California. Whatever it is, personally, politically, culturally, agronomically, whatever it is, for the believer, because of the plan that God has put forth in those five phases, all these things for us personally, God's working out that we daily be looking and acting more like his son, the Lord Jesus. All right, let's pray together.